This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahman. Welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. We critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week we discuss a classic text, theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. Joining us today is Dr. Farooq Yahya, man of the hour, really. Everybody I know went to your talk recently on Malay magic at Ilham Gallery. You are also the researcher for the Ashmalayan Museum of Art and Archaeology at the University of Oxford. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's an honour to be here. <laughs> Glad so. to have you here. So the interesting thing about, I guess, your work is that it focuses a lot on Malay magic, right? And the Malay context being what it is, magic preoccupies us in many ways, right? And I mean that loosely, right? I'm sure you have a more specific definition of what that means, but the fact that culturally it's not unusual for us to see traditional healers, to look beyond scientific responses or answers for illness and stuff like that, indicates that there's a certain attachment to, you know, what we know as magic. And I guess you're here to give us a lot of clarification on that. First things first, though, before we get into the work you do, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to uh, the field that you're in right now, uh, which is actually, uh, just to clarify to our listeners, you're actually an Islamic art historian, right? So magic is a branch of your many other interests. So let's start with that. Maybe your uh, intellectual motivations and the stuff that led you to where you are today as a thinker. Well... I did my master's degree at the School of Oriental and African Studies, which is SOAS, University of London. And I did my master's specializing in Islamic art. And one of the modules I did there was on Arab and Persian manuscript painting. And that sort of opened my eyes to what's in these manuscripts. And they're full of images, beautiful paintings. Mm -hmm. And that made me think, well... What about Malay ones? And that made me decide to look into more Malay manuscript painting. So as part of this course at SOAS, you have to do a dissertation. And I chose to do my dissertation on illustrated copies produced within the Malay area of this Arabic text called the Dalai al Khairat, which is a devotional text towards the Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And they're full of images. They're usually full of images based on Mecca, Medina, and the Prophet's tomb as well as his pulpit. So then when it came to do my PhD, it was quite natural for me to continue to do research on Malay illustrated manuscripts. Mm -hmm. So when I first started to do my PhD, my supervisor advised me to just basically look at all Malay manuscripts and see what jumps out at you. And when I was going through all these manuscripts, I saw that the magic and divination ones are full of images of animals, plants, human beings, spirits, buildings, mm -hmm. diagrams, charts, and that made me very curious. I want to, And they haven't been published or researched much, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I felt that you know I wanted to study this. Interesting. Now, before you developed this interest, did you have much exposure or knowledge about the arts? Not that much. I mean, I was always interested in arts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to love going to the Museum Nagara mm -hmm. and the other museums in Malaysia when I was younger. And when I went to the UK, I was really interested in exploring the museums there, like British Museum. Mm -hmm. I used to go to the open days or whatever. And I was always very interested. And I always liked history as well. Mm -hmm. And whenever I go traveling, I was sort of very interested in seeing, learning more about 
the culture and the arts of these places I wanted to visit, which led me to do the master's mm-hmm. degree, which I did. So what is it about magic that interests you? What is it that, I mean, you mentioned uh, the, it's graphic, right? It's visual in yes, these manuscripts, yes, yes. Uh, uh, images of plants and animals. But beyond that, what is it that speaks to you more specifically? I guess it's apart from the beautiful art, the interesting art that you find in here is that it's sort of a universal human experience. You know, these things are very personal to people and it transcends boundaries. You know, everyone, every culture basically has associations about magic mm-hmm. and divination. And in fact, during my research, one of the interesting things I found was that you find many similarities between Malay practices with other cultures around the world, within Southeast Asia mm-hmm. and beyond, both Muslim and non-Muslim as well. Yeah. And How do you understand magic in this context? Because I feel that as people located in the modern context, yeah. right, we might be projecting uh, yes, some of yes. our assumptions and maybe even hopes on what magic in the past can tell us, right? Yes. So maybe we can start with a definition on how you frame your study of magic. Magic is a very complicated term. Mm-hmm. But to put it simplistically, magic is basically things which you do to change things through a supernatural means. And divination basically is trying to predict what's going to happen in the future, but also to find out about things which are unseen. So for mm-hmm. example, you know, if someone's ill, then you might use divination to figure out what's wrong with that person. If someone's mm-hmm. gone missing, you might use divination to find that person. So, so does so. divination here refer to prophecy? I mean, what does, what does that refer to exactly? It's quite, in a way, similar or quite linked. I guess divination is trying to find out, trying to make decisions. You're trying kind to like make it... saying almost or something like that. Yes, although it's almost, yeah, basically. Yeah. So trying to find out what's unseen mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in the future or elsewhere. So, right. Yeah. So these two are linked insofar as they're trying to think beyond the limits of natural law. Right? Yeah, in basically. The sense yes, that, yes, yes, yes. Um, the supernatural world. So. Yeah, yeah. Given what we know, what can we say of what we don't know? So yeah. there's a speculative element to it. You also point out there's an aesthetic element to it as well, yes. right? So why can't it just be like a treatise, right? Where uh-huh. it's just like a list of propositions, right? And statements. But why, why must it require art? Well, not all magical practices have images within the manuscripts, but quite a lot do. In a way, you have diagrams and images because they help, they either help the magic practitioner to do the things which they want to do. Mm-hmm. That's one of the main reasons you have these images within the manuscripts. So basically the tools of the trade, you might use a table right. to find out. So these are diagrams, like yes. kind of how to, there's a how to element to it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, that. Right. But also, there's also other types of images such as talismanic designs and, I don't know, images of spirits, which you might draw to repel them, Mm -hmm. diagrams which you use to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. So they can be used for many different things. Do you have any insight as to what magic meant for the reader, right? Because again, I I find it limiting to think of magic in my context, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, in in the modern world, you have to somehow pit it against science. Yes, yes. Whereas I'm not so sure in the pre-modern sort of epistemic framework if that division is so cut and dry, right? Yeah. So what did that mean, that word? I mean, maybe there was a different word even, right? That we're using this word anachronistically. So mm. can you paint a picture of what magic meant then? I guess 
yeah, we can't apply modern scientific rational thought and project it back mm-hmm. back then. I mean, I guess it used to be more part of human life mm-hmm. because the supernatural world, as we discussed, is beyond the physical realm. Mm-hmm. So it includes things not just the spirits and demons, but also in the Islamic world would include God and mm-hmm. angels mm-hmm. and and all that as well. And it's very much part of people's yeah. lives. So in that, what uses of magic were there? So were, were these for health reasons? What Would one practice it for, say, navigation? I mean, what were yeah. the spheres of application? There are many, many functions of these magical and divinatory practices. Protection is a very important part of that. Healing is another one. When I was looking through the Malay manuscripts, quite a lot of it was to do with traveling, trying to find auspicious times to do either things like traveling, getting married, and also decision making. Mm-hmm. You know, should I go into business with this person? Should I get married to this person? Oh. Very practical yeah. concerns. Right. So it's not necessarily fantastical. No. Right? It could no. be very banal. They're actually, they're all, most of them, quite mundane <laughs> because it's a sort of human, yeah. human right. life right. Uh, things. Yeah, because we take it for granted that when we think of magic today, we expect it to be extraordinary, right? Yeah, uh, yes. But back then, like you said, given the way, how embedded these things are already in their worldview, it's, yes, yes, yes. it has to be practical or else it wouldn't really last that long. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah. want to be documented either, right? If it's yes. not quote-unquote practical to yeah, an extent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting that we have a picture of what magic means. Now, the more concrete context of the stuff that you work on, right. manuscripts yep. in particular, maybe before we get into what magic or the significance magic has in those manuscripts. Maybe we can talk about the manuscript world in general, yep. right? I mean, how old is the manuscripting tradition that the Malay context has? Like? Manuscript, manuscripts to explain with basically are books or documents which are written by hand because before printing, you have to write everything by hand. Yeah, there's Latin with manus, the hand. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Hand writing, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Manuscript. Um, and Malay manuscripts, the surviving ones, are usually tend to be made of paper and it can be in different forms. It can be in the form of a codex, like a normal book. But you also find things like folding books, concertina shape, as well letters and scrolls. So they can take many different shapes. And they contain many different types of texts like histories, legal codes, mm-hmm. medicine, magic and divination and so on. The tradition, unfortunately, the humid and hot climate of Southeast Asia means that most manuscripts early manuscripts don't survive. And it's the same, not just for Malay manuscripts, but all over Southeast Asia. So most of the surviving ones tend to be from the 18th century up to the early 20th century. And I say early 20th century because after that, printing sort of became more popular. Mm -hmm. So the manuscript tradition sort of died down. However, we know there are indications that the manuscript tradition in Southeast Asia, including Malay manuscripts, would have been much older than that because there are stone inscriptions datable up to the 7th century or even earlier. So basically, we know that there's writing on these stone inscriptions. And before you start inscribing things on stone, you have to to write them on perishable materials like paper or Mm -hmm. leaves. So we know that there are indications that the manuscript tradition goes back centuries. Right. Now, the thing is, people link the manuscript tradition with civilization more broadly because that's when society gets more complex. You need to document things. There's just more things to remember, right? Because there's just more things happening in your world. 
therefore you need stuff written down. Now, was this necessarily an Islamic thing, right? Could you say that there was a manuscript tradition that predated the so-called golden age of Malay civilization? Yeah, I mean, the stone inscriptions that I mentioned dating to the 7th century were under the Buddhist context. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a group of very important inscriptions which found in around the Palembang area, which is written in Old Malay, and they're written in Indic script, Indian-derived script. So, yeah, definitely the manuscript tradition predated the coming of Islam right, to but, the region. Um, so. Does it have a significant presence in the broader story of Malay manuscript, or is it just a footnote, like the pre-Islamic stuff? Probably not. I mean, probably it was a very important part because mm-hmm. we know that Srivijaya was a major learning center for mm-hmm. Buddhism. So you have all these scholars, mm-hmm. they would have needed books. Mm-hmm. And probably, I'm not quite sure, probably the other parts of Malay Peninsula, like Kedah, would also have lots of scholars, mm-hmm. Buddhist monks, they would have needed books right, right. to read. So it was, write, it was so. vibrant and it was not really just limited to, I guess, the uh, the growing influence of Islam then? No, no, it's definitely oh, predated it, so... Interesting. So uh, that's really useful context for more details. I think we'll get into the more particular stuff about magic in the okay, second part of the right. show. But let's take a break for now. Okay. And we'll be right back after these messages. I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat. Joining us today is Dr. Farouk Yahya. And we're talking about Malay, magic, and the history of our manuscripts. This is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat. Joining us this week is Dr. Farouk Yahya, the uh, researcher at the Ashmolean Museum of Art and Archaeology at the University of Oxford. And he is here to tell us about Malay magic in the history of our manuscripts. In the first part of the show, we got a good glimpse of the context. So we clarified what magic means, and we also talked about the broader story of the production and the the sustaining of Malay manuscripts. And maybe in the second part of the show, we can go into more details. Now, was there, I guess, in this discussion of magic back then a clear distinction between religion and magic or was it just blending all together? In terms of the Malay context, it's a very intertwined basically. Mm-hmm. As I said the supernatural world includes God and angels and Islam there's also the belief in jinn so we know that spirit world exists and a lot of these magical and divinatory practices do is that they ask God for help. So we want God to protect you by using these talismans with Quranic verses. You want God to help you make decisions. So before you do divinatory practice, you might recite some supplications Mm -hmm. or prayers. It's very much, quite a lot of it is Mm -hmm. basically asking God for help. So in a way, you can sort of think about it as popular piety or popular devotion. Which brings me to my next question about its quote-unquote popularity. Were these mostly court texts or were they circulating more broadly among the public? It transcends the whole of Malay society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I was looking through the manuscripts, we know that the magicians, the Bomo and Pawang, would have used them because we have uh, reports on them. But these manuscripts also usually, sometimes they contain information about who copied the manuscripts. Mm -hmm. At the end of the manuscript, usually, well, sometimes, occasionally, you have the person who copied it saying, oh, my name is so-and-so, I copied it on this day and this date in this place. And that helps to give you an idea and information about who would have used these manuscripts. And we find quite interesting things about from their names. Some of them have names like Raja or Tunku, so we know they were 
you know, connected to the royal families. And some of them have names like Imam or Haji or Labai. So we know that some of them were affiliated with the religious orthodoxy yeah. or religious officials. Yeah. In terms of the magicians themselves, we know that they would have used these manuscripts. However, from the names, they don't usually say that, oh, my name is Bomo, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it can be quite difficult to trace the manuscripts to a particular Bomo or magician. Yeah. Is there information on how one ends up becoming a magician there? Is it like a hereditary practice or is it something that you can kind of learn, like being a wizard or something? What was the production of this knowledge yeah. like? Yes. There can be, you can be a Bomo or Pawang in many different ways. Usually it's hereditary, so you learn it for your father or mother. Although you can't, if no one in your family was a Bomo or Pawang, then yeah, you could learn it under someone else. An interesting aspect about the transmission of knowledge, which I haven't really explored, is the supernatural transmission of knowledge, where to become a good, a powerful uh, magician is that you receive your knowledge supernaturally through dreams Mm -hmm. or through doing certain practices where you receive a vision, usually by a spirit or entity which then transmits the knowledge to you. So the transmission of knowledge can be from a physical world, but also mm-hmm. from a supernatural world yeah. as well. So now, we've used various terms at the change, be like Bomo, Pawang, yeah. maybe Dukun is another yes, kind yes, of like yes, comparable yes. term. Now, I'm sure these mean different things in nuanced ways, right? Yeah. Like, can you clarify it for us? Well, Bomo and Pawang and Dukun tend to be used interchangeably. Some people have come up with different definitions, for example... Perhaps Bomo is used more in the northern parts of the Malay Peninsula and Pawang Southern. However, other people have different definitions. They say that Bomo are to do more with, I think, general practices, whereas Pawang are more specialists, like you have a thin mining Pawang. Right, right. So, but then at the end, they use it well, they use it interchangeably. So, right, right. So. That's interesting. Because I assume that literacy wasn't popular at that time, right? I'm not sure, but only a certain class maybe could afford these sorts of things. I mean, because it's not mass-produced, right? Because you have to write them. So it's a skill. There's a certain craft to producing it. So it's not literacy. It's not popular in the way we think of popular reading today. Yeah. Right? So in that sense, it's not necessarily standardized. Yeah. Right? So in that world, right, one has the manual, but does one apply it by oneself or does one need a guide for it? So I guess... There are two things yeah. here. On one hand, the manual seems to be practical for everyday mundane mm-hmm. stuff. On the other hand, you have these specialists, right? Mm-hmm. How do these two things meet? That's very interesting. Something I'm still researching, trying to grapple with. I guess these manuals, well, firstly, what I found was no two are exactly the same. Interesting. They're all very different. Not, I haven't found any which are the same, which shows you that perhaps you have a manuscript specifically for you. So you compile the things which you are interested in which other people might not be. So they're very personalized. Secondly, they tend to vary in terms of quality, and some of them are very neat, some of them are quite scratchy and stuff. And in terms of content, what I found fascinating was some images and some diagrams where they don't actually tell you how to use it. Mm-hmm. So presumably, that information would have been relayed orally. Mm-hmm. So there's an oral element as well. That. Yeah, or it was just so common knowledge that yeah, you just yeah, needed be, yes, 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 partial yes. information to just figure everything out. Yeah. Now, you have a view of the longer durée, right? In a sense that the manuscripts 
on offer, the ones that you can yeah. access range a few hundred years, yeah. right? So have you developed like a broader look at how these, I guess, not sciences, but mm. knowledges evolved yeah. in time? Maybe something changes when it's closer to the modern period or it corresponds to other changes in their way of life or stuff like that. I guess in terms of content, I think I haven't really found a major change in terms of content. There's some manuscripts which are dated quite early, the 17th century. You find contents very similar to the ones mm-hmm. you find in early 20th century. So that's interesting in mm-hmm. itself. In terms of production, towards the late 19th, early 20th century, you find these manuscripts being produced for British colonial offices mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they were very interested in the topic mm-hmm. and they commissioned copies of that for themselves, for their own personal library. Yeah. And you can usually tell whether a manuscript was produced for a local practitioner and, and a British officer because the ones for the British officers tend to be very neat and clean mm-hmm. and hardly been used. Yeah. No, that's interesting because this was prior to, I guess, what we call today as the revivalist period in Islamization mm-hmm. in the 80s and late 70s where there was this widespread preoccupation with purifying Islam from excesses of speculation, excesses of innovation. What that has translated to is that you no longer indigenize Islam, right? It becomes this very standardized, global, largely maybe Wahhabi-funded kind of Islam where, you know, all you need are the basic practices and the knowledge that we can confirm. And now there's like traditional rooted stuff to your kind of local context. Those things can fall under culture and they sort of contaminate Islam, Mm -hmm. right? So, all this, I would say, changes what we understand to be local Islamic knowledge, yeah. right? So as you can tell, a lot of so-called, I don't know, I'm losing the words for it, but mm. the more traditional arts are fading as a result, yeah. either because time is changing or there's like a lot of stigma against it, right? Yeah. So what I noticed, at least, in terms of what we would call magic, right, yeah. is that A, is quite stigmatized today. People okay. don't talk about it publicly. Yeah. So when they go to Bomo, it's not something they want to share on Facebook yes, as yes. opposed to going to like a very expensive private hospital, right? Yeah. So in that sense, I noticed like a major paradigm shift, mm-hmm. right? Because now it's still widespread, but there's still a lot of anxiety around where this traditional, I guess, quote-unquote magic yeah. would fit into contemporary society. Yes. Yeah, I mean, in recent times, there is a bit more of a conservatism in yeah. terms of this topic. Although what I found was, even earlier than that, there were... There have always been many voices for and against mm-hmm, this. So mm-hmm. what I found was even during the 18th century, you have treatises right. sort of, I would say, not being happy with these sort of practices. And also even in the early 20th century as well. Definitely, yeah. Um, but again, even throughout the wider Islamic world, you know, previous centuries, over the centuries, there have always been different voices for and against. So it's mm-hmm. not a new thing in a way. Mm-hmm. And the concerns are not always about it being un-Islamic against the religion, they also concern scientific concerns and also moral concerns mm-hmm. as well. You know, trying to make sure that people are, well, I guess not being ripped off or taken advantage of. So there are many different concerns regarding this topic. Yeah. But again, attitudes vary between time and place. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to generalize things. Yeah. yeah. So do you sense that continuity, though, despite those changes in contemporary accounts or understanding of magic and I mean the things that you've explored in the past you know it sounds very essentialistic right like you said things change but might there be certain things that stand out that you find peculiar throughout 
the so-called changes and debates. Yeah, I mean, you still find people believing in the supernatural now and seeking supernatural help now, even now, especially when modern science and technology and modern institutions can't help. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're ill and and the doctor doesn't know what's wrong with you, you might attribute it to supernatural causes and seek supernatural healing. Yeah. Or if someone's gone missing and the police can't find that person, so you might ask maybe a BOMO to help locate that person. So things which modern world can't cope with, then people would still go through this. Right, so you always encounter a limit at which point reason doesn't suffice. Yes. Right, and one of the resources to think beyond that limit are these things that we call magic, I guess, yeah. right? And because it's so culturally pervasive, it's so tempting to just hear what they have to say. Yes, right? yes. Now, can you clarify what hantu means in all this? So the extent to which they do feature at all in in these discourses, right? Yeah. Uh, because that word is a local word. I'm not sure yes, the extent yeah. to which there are many Arabic analogs and the particular kind of hantus that still survive in popular narrative like Hantu Jumbala, Hantu Tete and all that mm-hmm. seems very local to me. I don't know if there's like a, I don't know if there are equivalents in Persia or something. I don't know. So maybe yes. this is the time to clarify. Hantu usually, well, tend to think about them as ghosts, but they also, in these texts, also refer to spirits. Mm-hmm. Spirits in general, the Hantu Jumalang spirit of the earth and they're basically spirits as well as ghosts. And the Malay worldview is that they exist everywhere. And sometimes they're called hantu, sometimes they're called jinn, which derives from the Arabic, the wider Islamic tradition. And as I said, the Islamic world also has belief in this jinn. So it's quite natural for... Because the Islamic worldview doesn't contradict the Malay worldview. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's quite natural for it There's to come There's something more menacing about hantus than jinns. So jinns, at least the way I've grown up around that term, uh, yeah. they say they're Muslim jinns, oh, yes, Christian yes. jinns. So like, hantus are just like ominous, you know? Yeah. So I mean, there's that different tone in talking about the two that seems yes. to maintain a difference. Even though, like you say, conceptually, yeah, the, yeah. You know, as much as concepts can afford in this case, like, conceptually they're yeah, the same, yeah. mm-hmm. but... The way we talk about the way we relate to them are, are different, it seems. Yes. I mean, the texts tend to use hantu and jinn interchangeably, or sometimes yeah. shaitan or whatever. I mean, there's different types of spirits. Some are nature spirits. Some are the, well, people who have died at violent death kind of spirits. Some are more evil spirits. But some are neutral spirits, mm-hmm. like spirit of a tree, of a site. Yeah. And they don't necessarily cause you harm, but you want to make sure that you don't disturb them and you don't yeah. offend them and and you have to make sure that they're appeased. Do you have any interesting yeah. anecdotes about these spirits from your research that you found that somehow made an impression on you about hantus? Um, I can't oh, no think of that at the moment, sorry. I'm trying to get some chilita hantu into <laughs> night right. school. It is called <laughs> night school after all. But I do wonder too about your own unique position as a Malay researcher in this discourse yep. in the UK mm-hmm. where is a largely secularized approach yep. to the arts where the significance of these characters from the past yep. isn't so live there, right? Whereas in Malaysia, the hantus that were mentioned maybe in the 17th right, century yes. still feature quite prominently in everyday discourse, in bedtime stories and just maybe even people's personal beliefs mm-hmm. today, yep. right? In 2017, mm-hmm. right? And I find that even more interesting as a researcher to see that continuity. Whereas maybe in the UK, the tendency would be to look at maybe dragons in medieval period as just a joke or something, you know, but not a joke, but they're more like semiotic rather than a kind of live option in your identity, right? Yeah, so I mean, 
I'm an academic, so I try to look at things objectively. I mean, I don't condone these practices. I don't of course, prohibit of course, these yeah. practices. I try to look at them in an objective way. But anthropologically, it's interesting. Yes, it's interesting yeah. to see how... Yeah, I always feel different studying these things in the UK and studying things here where it's so... Yes, yeah, as you say, it's so part of the environment in a way. And yeah, and I quite like to research this topic more over here. Yeah. It's just sort of different studying it in a library or in your office in the UK when compared to studying it out in the field here. So. Yeah, and you're conditioned in a certain way when I grow up accustomed to these terms and characters and then, you know, you drive alone at night an empty road right. and you start thinking things, you know, uh, residually, you know, because you grow up around these yes, characters. Yes. But even at times when you're in a Western country in a museum alone and you hear your footsteps and you're just around these ancient relics, yes. you feel like, what's hovering around my neck? You know, oh, I mean, yeah. you get that <laughs> as a Malay, I guess. But I wonder about the time that you've spent laboring with these texts alone because a lot of research work is solitary, right? Yeah. You ever get those moments when you have <laughs> these confrontations with your, you know, your past narratives or whatever, you know? <laughs> Tell us a bit about what researching is like, you know, especially when it comes to hantus and stuff? Do you always maintain an objective or do you get some existential trepidation uh, encountering them or anything like that? Actually, the difficulty with studying these manuscripts is actually trying to decipher what they say (laughs) because they're so esoteric. Some of them are very esoteric. And some of I say don't have these images, don't have any explanation. So you have to either read anthropological reports or what I've done is that I've looked at stuff written on other cultures because you have similarities. So sometimes I look at books on Thai magic and Thai divination, trying to see what they say, how they explain these things Mm -hmm. and apply them to the Malay context. Relating to your question, there were times where when I've been back in Malaysia and interviewing some practitioners and you do sort of feel it a bit more in a way. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? I can't explain that. I'm pretty objective as well. I like to think I'm pretty science-minded, but you know, a certain world has shaped you for decades. And, yes, you know, you can't, uh, can't it's very escape. hard to shake yeah. up those instinctive reactions, yes, yes, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's interesting stuff. Farouk, thank you for sharing a lot of your knowledge. Unfortunately, we have to cut it short for this episode. But how can our listeners get in touch with you? Are you on Facebook? Are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter. My Twitter's handle is at Farouk So F-A-R-O-U-K-C-A-T. I'm on Facebook as well. Or you can contact me through the Ashmolean Museum. Oh, great. So, so they can yeah. look at your name at the Ashmolean Museum yeah. and just, you know, maybe send you questions or maybe comments yes. about your book. And you do have a few books out already. And they're big books too. I have them here with me. One is from your dissertation, correct? Magic yes. and Divination in Malay Illustrated Manuscripts. That's by yep. Brill. Really yes. wonderful publication. Yes. Thank you. Publisher too. Power and Protection, Islamic Art and the Supernatural. That was an exhibition we held at the Ashmolean. The book's curated by our curator of Islamic Art, Dr. Francesca Leone, and I was, I'm her research assistant, and I helped her with that exhibition. Ah, I see, I um, see. And this is from 2016 as well? Yeah, last year. So. And these are huge books too, because you have to fit in a lot of very interesting yeah. graphics as well. Yes, yes. And this other one? This yeah, that's my latest one, The Arts of Southeast Asia from the SOAS Collections, which is an exhibition catalogue of an exhibition for which I was assistant curator at SOAS, which ended last year. And it's on sale now, published by Arika Books. And it contains lots of things about Southeast Asian art, including a section on magic and divination. So. Right, and this is available locally. Yes, correct? Yes, yeah. yes. Interesting stuff. There you have it, folks. Farouk's books, which you can look up online, or you can email us directly to the show 
for questions and comments as well, bfmnightschool.gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook, that's BFM Night School, type that on the search space. And also be sure to download our app. You can find it at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Be sure to download it if you haven't yet. Thanks again, Farouk. This is really enjoyable. And we hope to have you again on another show, maybe for your next trip. Once again, I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahman. This is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.